You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 44, verses 1 through 3, almost a clean getaway. Compared with their disastrous first trip to Egypt, this one was a great success. Simeon had been released from prison, they had been treated kindly and graciously by the governor, and all eleven of them were returning to their father. But we know something they don't know. Joseph had commanded the steward of his house to add something to their giant bags of grain. Their silver would be returned to them. That was surprising, but not something he hadn't done before. But then he orders that a prized possession, his silver cup, be placed surreptitiously into the sack of the youngest brother, Benjamin. The following morning after the feast, the men saddle their donkeys and begin the journey home. Verses 4 to 10, the charge and the defense. Joseph stays at home from work that morning, and after a time, he sends his steward to apprehend them just outside the city gates and say, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When they hear the charge, they can't believe it. It's incongruous with their previous behavior and integrity, and they would never show such ingratitude. Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? I wonder how they felt now being falsely accused again. They are so sure that none of them has it, they boldly vow, if any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. So this is another example of a rash vow. The steward agrees, but changes the terms. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Verses 11 to 13, the test of abandonment. They each present their bags of grain for inspection. The steward proceeds to search, but instead of just going in the order he finds them, he begins with the eldest and ends with the youngest. We already saw in the previous chapter that the chances of this happening are virtually impossible. Also, how would this stranger know their birth order? The men notice it again, but don't understand its significance. The momentum builds. As each search turns up empty, they must have felt immense relief. Only one to go. The steward plunges his hand into the grain, looks up at them, and withdraws the silver cup out of Benjamin's sack. They gasp in surprise, Benjamin probably most of all. There is no look of guilt in his eyes, just shock. He is speechless. What difference would it make to protest his innocence when they are staring at the evidence? So how could this be happening? They had been on their way out of Egypt for good. There is not even a hint of contemplation that they would abandon Benjamin to his fate alone. They are united. They will stand or fall as one family now. We can't judge people by their past actions, since God can and does change them. Age and experience make men wiser. And these same brothers who had sold Joseph now refused to abandon Rachel's other son, Benjamin. 
They tear their clothes in grief as they realize what this means. Their father will lose all of his sons at once. They all load their donkeys back up and return to the city to face the consequences. Verses 14 to 17, Guilty Consciences Instead of being brought to the granary where they'd expect the governor had gone, they are returned to his home. As soon as they enter the room, all eleven men throw themselves onto the ground before him. Again, but notice it says, when Judah and his brothers came in. This again shows us that Judah is gaining in importance in the family over Reuben. So Joseph challenges them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? He is keeping up the act, portraying outrage over their actions. For him to claim to use divination is part of what they'd expect from a pagan Egyptian, not something Joseph actually does. But he did not but he did know what they'd done back on that day twenty two years earlier, but not because of divination. Judah admits they have no defence. What can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? It would seem that even though they were innocent of this particular crime, the weight of the evidence was against them. They are united. Notice all the plural pronouns. Earlier, they made the connection between their actions and the consequences, but now they know that it was God doing this. They see that this was supernatural in order to bring them to repentance over what they did to Joseph. God has uncovered your servant's guilt, he admits. In one sense, God doesn't find out our guilt, because that implies that at some point it was hidden from him. Instead, he reveals to us that he's known about our secret sins all along. And here we have true solidarity. Instead of abandoning another son of Rachel to Egypt, so long as they can be free and return home, is not an option. He says, we are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph wants to be fair. There's no need for all of them to be punished. Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will be my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. They must have heard the phrase, go back to your father in peace, and known there would be no peace for their father or themselves if they returned without Benjamin. Verses 18 through 32, Judah's Appeal. Judah dares to make one final appeal for mercy from the intimidating governor who holds the power of life and death over them. He politely and deferentially asks if he can speak a word to him. He begs him not to be angry and recognizes that he is equal in, to Pharaoh himself in power. He, replace, uh, he replays how they got to this point. He had asked about their family, and they told him honestly about their aged father, who had a young son born to him in his old age. Here they refer to Benjamin. Then we see what they really believed about Joseph. He says, his brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. For a stranger hearing this, he would not know all about the two wives and two concubines, but Judah has no trouble now admitting that Rachel was his father's favorite wife and her sons his favorite sons. He knows his father loves Benjamin fiercely. This in itself reveals a great change in Judah, who represents the mindset of all the brothers. He continues, Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so I can see him for myself, 
And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Judah feels it's important to share every conversation to show they were torn in several directions. The governor demanded to see Benjamin, but their father refused to release him. When their grain ran out, their father wanted to send them back for more food, but they reminded him of the governor's conditions. Then Judah reveals to Joseph what happened after he was sent to Egypt and what his father thought had happened to him that day. You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. Judah doesn't even have a problem accepting that his father refers to Rachel's sons almost as if they were his only true sons. Then Judah shows why his father was reluctant to let Benjamin go. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. But what does the grief of one old man in another country matter to this powerful man? Will it make him change his mind? Judah explains, So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. He wanted the governor to understand how intertwined their father's life was with Benjamin's. If Benjamin died, or was as good as dead, being left in Egypt, then their father would surely also die of grief, as he said, and they'd be responsible for it. Then he surprises Joseph with more information he didn't have. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Imagine Joseph hearing this from the man who wanted to profit from selling him. What could have happened to Judah in those intervening years to cause such a change in him? Well, we readers know. Losing two sons made him understand his father's grief. Being confronted with his sin and hypocrisy by Tamar humbled him. So now he was willing to give up his family, his future, and his freedom to spare Benjamin the agony of slavery and his father a grief that would lead to his death. He was not the same man as he was that day by the pit. Writers refer to this as a character arc when we see a positive change in a character from the beginning to the end of the story. Verses 33 to 34, Judah's offer to be a substitute. What more could he say? They could not bribe the man. If his appeal to be concerned about the emotional well-being of a foreign man did not move him, all he could offer now was himself. So he did. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. Judah had his own family back home. Tamar, Shalah, and his family, and his own twin boys, Perez and Zerah. But he would sacrifice the rest of his time with them if only the governor would release Benjamin to return to his father. He offered to be a true substitute, a slave in place of the boy, unlike Reuben who only offered up his sons. Then he reveals that far from the deceitful men who so easily lied to their father 
about what happened to Joseph that day. They now care about him. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. This appeal by Judah to Joseph is one of the most beautiful, moving, and poignant ever recorded in scripture. It reveals his love and concern for both his brother and his father. It is unselfish and self-sacrificing, and we'll see it works. Joseph will be moved emotionally and convinced that they are finally repentant. Francine Rivers, in her book Lineage of Grace, says, Judah then moved back to Mesopotamia and renewed his relationship with his father and brothers. When they were confronted by Joseph and he demanded that Benjamin be left as his slave, Judah stepped forward, claimed the disaster upon them was due to their own sins, and offered his life in place of his brothers. Seeing the change in Judah, Joseph wept and revealed his true identity. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ are an application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? Just as God sovereignly used insignificant things to prick the brothers' consciences, so God draws us. Just as the brothers were still tested after they've been recipients of Joseph's kindness and favor, so we are tested even though we are saved to bring us to repentance, to prove the genuineness of our faith, and to remind us how much we owe to Jesus' mercy. Joseph's brothers again bowed down to him, this time all eleven, as in his dream. All people will bow before Jesus. Judah was a surety or guarantor for Benjamin, so he'd be brought safely to his father. Jesus is our surety, guaranteeing we will be brought safely to our Heavenly Father. Judah's appeal was based on love for his father and brothers. Jesus became our surety because of his love for the father and us, his brethren. Judah would have been enslaved for life. Jesus lived as a servant, then died the death of a criminal. Judah offered himself in exchange for one person. Jesus' death purchased all of the people of God. Judah offered to be a substitute for his brother. Jesus was the substitute, first for the guilty Barabbas, then for all his people. Just as Judah did not want to go to his father without the boy, so we should desire the salvation of our children. Just as Judah now clings to Benjamin, so the tribe of Benjamin will remain united to the tribe of Judah when the nation divides. Also, the Apostle Paul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, is faithful to Jesus from the tribe of Judah. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Genesis chapter 45. May God bless the study of his word.